Okay, good morning and welcome backwards to Bodhi Speak. I'm talking with Dr. Stephanie Van Hope, uh, a very good friend of mine, community member. We've been friends for like 12 years. I think one of the first times we ever talked together was in Guatemala on a bus. I remember we had this like really long conversation connected then. You remember that? I don't really remember it. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I remember speaking to you okay. on Green Street in Brooklyn. Oh, that's right. On that bench. Yeah. I remember that too. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we've always kind of had these good philosophical conversations about many things in the path and so on. And I'm really happy that you're here. Really grateful that you're here. Thank you for coming. Um, so we're going to talk today about uh, the psychedelic renaissance that's happening. Is that a good way to put it? Sure. Cool. Yeah. So before we get into it, I'm going to read your bio. Uh, so Dr. Stephanie Van Hope is a registered nurse, certified nurse coach, and doctor of nursing practice with experience in oncology, hospice, and health coaching and nursing education. She served as a study guide for New York University Psilocybin Cancer Anxiety Project, guiding cancer patients through psychedelic journeys with psilocybin and offers a continuing education course for nurses entitled Nursing and Sacred Medicine, Introduction to Psychedelic Therapy, and serves as a learning facilitator for the Synthesis Institute's Psychedelic Practitioner Training Program. Stephanie is a Reiki practitioner and a student of yoga, meditation, astrology, plant medicine, music, dance, and the sacred traditions of many faiths. She currently resides with her husband, son, in an intentional community in the Catskills region of New York. Awesome. Okay. So, uh, just reading through your bio, I guess the first thing I would like to talk with you about, uh, could you just share a little bit about the uh, time you had doing the New York University Psilocybin Cancer Anxiety Project? That sounds fascinating, and I would like to know more about it. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Jerry. Mm -hmm. It's good to be here with you. It's good to carve out some time for us to catch up and have conversation and if anybody else enjoys listening to it that's even better uh -huh. and um <clears throat> so i was i became a nurse in 2010 and i went to the horizons conference uh, back when it was pretty small now it's a pretty big conference in new york and i was friends with the with kevin baltic who puts on the conference from kind of a different way of knowing him just quick funny thing i i know kevin baltic pretty well because he uh worked with kate uh, -huh. uh and myself and helping her install sculptures at mystery land festival a couple years yeah. back yeah yeah so because he, I he organizes a lot of like cultural things like related to burning man community and uh -huh. that's kind of where i knew him from but then i went to the horizons conference and um i just told him i was interested in getting involved in any research and I was just a nursing student um, I had had like a little bit of research experience prior to that in psych research and he introduced me to Jeff Gus who was one of the principal investigators of the study and it was just really just getting off the ground at that point and I was able to to work with the team which was really cool um, once I became a nurse they asked me at first I was kind of just volunteering to help them with recruitment and then once I became a nurse they asked me to be a study therapist which I was really thrilled about I didn't know that that was going to be possible for me um, at that stage and I was working in oncology so it was appropriate you know that I could work with people who had cancer diagnosis um, on their journey and so we I, I, I was only on that study for a short time because I moved after a short time there, but I moved to Connecticut, but 
I worked with a couple clients and um, saw, you know, worked with them through preparation, like three preparation sessions, Mm -hmm. two dosing sessions. One is psilocybin, one is a placebo, which was niacin. Mm. And so they're, you didn't, they didn't know, none of us knew which one was which. I mean, you kind of do get a sense of it, (laughs) (laughs) but we didn't know which one was which officially. And then we did three integration sessions afterwards to help them, you know, take the lessons and bring them into their life and amplify the good things that they had received. Yeah. I remember uh, hearing about, I think the Good Friday experiment where like Ram Dass and Timothy Leary, they they did this with psilocybin in the, in the the chapel, whatever Mm -hmm, church it was. Marsh Chapel. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, it was pretty obvious right away, like who had the placebo and who didn't. Yeah. The person that was, you know, screaming, "Oh my God, what's happening?" versus the person that was going, "Oh, I might be feeling something." Yeah, that's <laughs> it's definitely a huge, um, it's a huge confounder in psychedelic research. Um, it's really hard to get a true uh, double-blind study mm-hmm. when you when you don't have a good placebo, you know, um, and but. The interesting thing is that on that study and maybe some others, they do ask the patient what they think they got. Mm-hmm. And most people know, but some people are incorrect in their in their guess, which is, I mean, the clients that I worked with, it was really clear, but maybe some people have different experiences. So that's kind of an interesting one. So I, I guess most of these people who are receiving the psilocybin or the placebo, they've just never done this before. Ever. I think that that was a study requirement that they okay. be psilocybin naive. And what when you went into that, like, what were some, you know, preconceptions that you had about what it was going to be like to be a therapist during that? Was as a therapist the right word well, to describe it? I mean, no. I think that's. I think we were called guides. Guide. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because therapist, it's like that's like official title. I mean, it's like I think it's appropriate. Because there can be many types of therapists. It doesn't mean you're a psychotherapist. Sure. And that's one of the things that's coming up right now in the in the psychedelic world. Like, for example, some people call it psychedelic assisted therapy, mm-hmm. meaning that's kind of putting the therapy more in the forefront yep. and the psychedelics assisting it. And then some people call it psychedelic therapy, which is what I'm a little more fond of coming in as a nurse because it's more like the psychedelics are the therapy and you're assisting that. Yeah. Um, so, but you could call it guide for now. Okay. So what kind of, um, preconceptions did you have going in as a guide and thinking like what this going to be like, and then how was the reality of it either mirroring that or something totally different? And what were some like takeaways and things that you learned from that Uh experience? Um, Hmm. What did I think it was going to be like? Um, I think... I mean, it was a long time ago now. It was like 12 years ago. But I think it was similar to what I thought it would be like. Um, Okay. I think maybe one of the surprises is that, like, so the environment is very comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's in a, it was at the NYU School of Dentistry in like an office space, but they made it really well designed and decorated a comfy couch they had like shpipo fabric hanging and like art okay. here and there oh. <laughs> and like um and so it wasn't too clinical it wasn't too clinical yeah, that's good to hear um <laughs> and the therapists are all very kind and you know proficient in the way that they work with people have a lot of experience in working with people and you have the preparation sessions and but it's not like a shamanic or 
um, ritualistic setting. There's like a little element of ritual integrated into it. Like there was um, a certain cup that you use for the dosing. I think we had something like a knot where we tied a knot before the session started and untied it afterwards or something like that. Okay. I think we held hands before. Like I said, it was a while ago, so I don't remember all the details. But, um, but it, it certainly wasn't like a truly ritualistic setting. So I think what surprised me was how deep people can go. Um, uh-huh. Just, you know, that like just these medicines, like, and it was synthetic psilocybin too. Mm. All like pretty much in all the studies it is. And so they could control, like they know how much a person is getting as much. That's, yeah, that's that. the, um, that was my understanding too. But you know, now in Oregon, um, they are, cause Oregon has illegal psilocybin right. assisted uh, adult assisted psilocybin therapy use or what are we calling it assisted adult use of psilocybin or something like that uh-huh. program and they use I think they can use synthetic but mostly people are using actual fungal matter but it has to be tested by a lab so that you know exactly how many micrograms of psilocybin are in the that particular strain or that particular sample sure um, so you can use I think maybe people are just learning now that it is possible to use fungal mass and still maintain some like, you know, controls over it for scientific purposes on mm-hmm. the dosing. But anyway, it was synthetic and um, people go really deep and, but not everybody, like some people have like truly life changing, you know, mystical yeah. experiences uh-huh. as they, they, they use a mystical experience questionnaire um, in that study. It just sounds funny. I know, it does sound funny, right? Um, That's cool, though. To determine, yeah. you know, if somebody had a mystical experience, to describe that, mm-hmm. quantify it. Um, but not everybody has that type of experience. Um, sometimes it's more subtle. Sometimes it's like, you know, they might they might go through something, you know, an intense process, but come out on the other side, like, not really sure what happened, you know, and then we talk about mm. an integration. Like there was this one woman I remember working with where she was just like, I don't think she saw how much her anxiety had decreased, but we could see it. Mm. And she was like, you know, I'm just spending more time with my husband. We're going on walks outside in nature more and listening to music and, and like, you know, just kind of subtle, more subtle changes. So there's really a range. And how much were they given? Oh, I'd have to go back to look at that. Um, it was like, I, w- I have looked at it recently, but I can't remember. Uh-huh. Um, it was like a certain dose per kil- per kilogram, like a weight-based dose, which I don't know if that's, I think people are questioning if that's the right way to go these days or not. Um, I w- yeah, I wouldn't think that's the way to do yeah. mushrooms. I feel like yeah. it's kind of, there's a general threshold for most people. Yeah. Some people are very sensitive to them, is my understanding. Yeah. But yeah. And... Um, but it was like a medium, it was like a large medium dose. Okay. It was like a large medium to a small large. So something probably around two to four grams probably. Yeah, like that, the equivalent. Okay. Yeah. And were, do you remember if most of the people who were coming were like, were they already religiously or spiritually oriented or were they more like, was it a mix? It was a range. Range, okay. Yeah. I think um, also, you know, like I said, I only worked with a couple of people, but there are quantitative studies one by um a gentleman named alex belser and one by and his people and then cody swift and his people and they interviewed 
um, people in that study and kind of looked for themes. And so one of them, which I thought was really cool, is that almost across the board, almost everybody talked about a person, like whether it was somebody in their life currently or somebody maybe who's passed um, as being really central in the journey. Mm -hmm. So even though they were journeying <clears throat> by themselves, although in the company of their therapists, but right. their, their guides, but by themselves, like it was a very relational experience and that maybe that is like a fundamental quality of this medicine is that mm. is, you know, relational because, you know, significant people would enter into the experience inevitably. Mm. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Just understanding like the shamanic connection with all these medicines about like the emphasis on relationships. Mm -hmm. So that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Not surprising. Um, in terms of people having these like radical, like life-changing experiences, could you share a little bit about what people would share with you after the experience was over and like what that looked like for certain people? Um, there's one woman who I didn't work with personally, but she described her experience in a short documentary that I was in. Um, and she just said, she talked about kind of like going through some chaos, but then like breaking through these are people with cancer. She had a moment where she was like sp speaking to her cancer and she told it like to get the, get the F out of here or something like that. And she wasn't <laughs> sure if it was the cancer or the fear that she had around it. Uh -huh. um, but she kind of broke through that and got to a very beautiful place. I think she said she was like on a river and she was like, and I'm an atheist, like I'm a uh -huh. serious atheist, but the <laughs> only way I could describe it was being bathed in God's love. Hmm. And that's the only way I could describe it afterwards. And she talks about how she was driving home with her daughter, who's also an atheist. And she was like, or maybe the next day she was talking to her daughter and she was telling her about that and how it felt and how she felt she was being bathed in God's love. And then she was like, but I guess that couldn't really be. And her daughter was like, yeah, probably not. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, I guess not. So she still like feels that she's an atheist, but she had, but she had a, a visceral lived experience of being Bates and God's love. And, you know, and it changed, it changed her experience with her fear of a recurrence and, you know, really made her anxiety just like, at least that anxiety kind of go away. Huh. But then I've actually seen, I've seen her, I've spoken with her on a panel before. And she said recently that she's had even other cancers since then. Wow. And the anxiety hasn't been as bad but like she's still it's not like she's like this perfect you know peaceful bodhisattva now like she it helped her with that and mm -hmm. it helped her overall but it's not like it's not an end-all be-all to all your anxieties and whatnot of course not. yeah there's not a quick fix it's it's funny like the whole thing of someone being an atheist uh it you know I'm thinking when you're talking I'm thinking about Carl Jung. Someone asked him like, "Do you believe in God?" And he's like, "No, I don't believe in God. Like, I know God exists because I've had the experience of mm. it. And the experience is like, there's no need to like question or think about it. Once you've had the experience, it overrides everything. It's mm -hmm. like I don't need to believe whether or not my computer is here. It's here. Mm -hmm. I'm experiencing it right mm -hmm. now. Uh, and I just find it interesting because it's like to give birth. Just from my experience of watching my wife go through giving birth, I would think that would be a pretty transcendental spiritual experience um 
But of course, not for everybody. Mm -hmm. And even then to say like, I've been bathed in God's love and having gone through childbirth, but then with your daughter say like, no, I just, I just find that fascinating. Um, No judgment or anything about it. Just really interesting how people like formulate, you know, a certainty that, you know, God or divinity doesn't exist. Um, I just wanted to share that Uh before I get, ask you another question. Yeah. Um, So this was 10 years ago. Like 12. 12, I think, yeah. Okay, so uh, where is it all at now? So there's, okay, so right now the three big medicines, and, and I want to just take a step back and say, I say psychedelics because that's the term that is pretty commonly known out there. Yeah. Um, I also like the term entheogens. It uh-huh. um, means creating God within, generating God and experience of God. Um, which I, I kind of prefer that, but people just don't always know what that means. Sure. And sometimes I just say sacred medicine because to me that to me that's just like the easiest term to describe in English, like what I'm talking about. And it doesn't have any negative connotation around it. Yeah. I, I would think not at least. Yeah. And psych. Well, some people, you know, sometimes I, sometimes I don't say sacred medicine, in a, if it's in a certain very scientific. Yeah. You know. For, there, there you have a negative connotation. Yeah. Problems. So. <laughs> the atheist um, perspective. So, but I mean, uh, if I, I'm gonna maybe use all of those interchangeably, but to me, these are sacred medicines. And mm-hmm. they have been used in sacred cultures by and held by traditions and medicine carriers, knowledge wisdom keepers for thousands of years. And mm-hmm. I always like to just acknowledge that my gratitude to those cultures, um, to those ways of, of being and practicing with these beautiful medicines. And that a lot of what we do comes from um, those traditions, whether it's kind of a direct or indirect in a direct or indirect way, like a direct way would be that, you know, the psychedelic renaissance in the 60s in the West, like the first one, came through, um, oh my gosh, this is weird, I'm forgetting his first name, Watson, going, Gordon Watson. thank you, Gordon Watson. Was it Watson or Watson? Watson. Watson, Watson. Yeah. Uh-huh. Gordon Watson going to Oaxaca and having an experience with Maria, Maria Sabina, uh-huh. and you know, a lot of the... Um, just the paradigms of how we do psychedelic therapy kind of some of the things that we do are similar like having music be important right like um i mean i mean just even the knowledge that this could be a healing experience for people you know like come with a strong intention yeah like what do mm-hmm. you want to call in and let go i mm-hmm. imagine that's a huge mm-hmm. part of the western mm-hmm. western psychotherapy mm-hmm. model and so on. Yeah. and so I think we're in a really interesting time right now where the West, I guess you could say, is grappling with and experimenting with how to create these um, sacred spaces for healing and communion with sacred medicines. And so it's really important that we acknowledge where these medicines have come from and what we might have to learn from wisdom traditions if we can learn to be uh, humble and cooperative and trying to to work together to gain knowledge and and create safe spaces and practices for people mm-hmm. um, but at the same time we're also figuring out our ways and it's not it doesn't work just to kind of 
remove something from one culture and transplant it into another and definitely part of yeah. it is us having as the like they some as some cultures refer to us as the younger brother mm-hmm. like we need to we need to do like figure out our own mistakes and and wrestle with things and figure it out so um <clears throat> right now the big three medicines are ketamine psilocybin and mdma okay um, Th- these are the things that the, the culture is basically like open to really working with at the moment yeah because i know lsd is one of those things LSD is, but it is seemed, too it's it's a little bit out of favor it's kind of controversial huh not as controversial no. i think it's just a little out of favor because pro- mostly because it has a lot it's long acting yeah it is a long it's time. longer acting than uh, psilocybin where psilocybin would be like five six hours this could be like 10 plus lsd and so it's hard to do a one-day dosing session with somebody with lsd gotcha that's really the primary thing that i kind think of so out? okay i think so I, I just know it has a long history i mean um Albert Hoffman's book. Could be, it could be that too. Child. Yeah, My it could be that child. too. It could be people <laughs> wanting to kind of make a break with like the LSD 60s association. Yeah, I think, well, that's that's my own, you, you're the expert. I don't really know. That's just my guess, but go on. With what there's going to be, there's, um, I know Je- uh, Stephen Ross, who's one of the principal investigators at NYU, is doing an LSD study for alcoholism upcoming. Cool. Um, but anyway, the big ones that have had a lot of research are those three. Mm hmm. Um, ketamine, I think one of the reasons that it's in favor right now is because it's legal. It's a Schedule Three substance as opposed to Schedule One, and so it's used as an anesthetic and a pain, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, as a sedative and an anesthetic in like surgery or post-surgery or procedural for in like hospitals and whatnot. But it can also be used to treat depression, and it has been used to treat depression in the past, just like as a very pharmacological treatment, like somebody you give somebody an infusion or an IM dose without any supportive therapy or anything, but it's just like, okay. And then people's depression does go away generally or greatly reduced for about two weeks. But mm. without any other interventions, it comes back, but it can be really, you know, it could be life-saving for somebody who needs that, that who's suicidal or something, who needs that immediate relief. And it's technically, I've never done it, um, I, just for the record. Uh, but mine are saying it's a dissociative. It's not a psychedelic. Yeah. Right? That's what the, so the there's so there's like so psilocybin, LSD, and DMT are considered classical psychedelics, and they work on the serotonergic system. Right. Uh-huh. Whereas MDMA is they call it some people call it an empathogen or an antactogen, antactogen, um, which is like kind of creates maybe less of a hallucinatory experience but more of a relational experience helping mm-hmm. people to relate to themselves or relate to others um, helps you kind of like lower your defenses and so MDMA is one where they do, do use it more for psychedelic assisted therapy like where they are actually maybe doing some sort of therapeutic t- technique during the experience like maybe something like somatic experiencing or internal family systems work um, well, how would you describe somatic experiencing? Um, what would that I mean, be exactly? I'm not an expert. I, okay. I only ha- I only have a general knowledge, but it's basically using the body as a way of guiding the therapy session, like feeling into first feeling into your body because some okay. people don't really know how to do that. Sure. And yeah. then like feeling into certain sensations to see what they might have to say or share, and you know how to how to learn how to cope with any strong and um, things that come from sensations but also to learn like where they might come from or what you can learn from them and ifs internal family systems is 
Something, have you ever heard of it? Uh, it, no, I don't think so. I mean, it sounds like family constellations, but it's, that could be radically yeah. different. Yeah, and it's, no, they're pretty but, similar. Okay. They're, they have they have some similarities. Okay. Um, I'm, I've been learning about it because it's very prevalent in the psycho, psychedelic therapy landscape right now. Um, and I'm learning a little bit more about it now. I'd like to go deep, more deeply into it, but it's like saying that everybody has kind of a family constellation within themselves in a sense and different uh-huh. parts of them working with different parts of yourself and some of the parts are maybe a protector part that's pro- that's there like to protect you from a traumatic or scary experience that you had in the past and it's there to do its job and it's been doing a good job so it's like recognizing it for the good job that it's been doing but then maybe also that part might be stuck in the past so like updating yeah, it sure. to what might be truly needed now and and then going into the parts that have been protected and like a lot of those are kind of like deep inner child parts and Mm -hmm. nurturing those parts and different things like that it's really interesting and it also has like a very spiritual and almost like sometimes shamanic overlay or underpinning to it i could Um, i could see how that could work really well with something like mdma or psilocybin for sure because all of a sudden all the emotions that are like fueling that part of you are in a deeper sense are coming to the surface and you can be like oh do i really want to like give this part of me like credence anymore yeah so yeah yeah um and so yeah mdma is an empathogen and i think it works partly on the serotonergic system but also on other systems and then ketamine is a dissociative and um like i said it is it's probably of the three, the one I'm least familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. And it can be really good for acute depression. People are now using it more with as ketamine-assisted therapy or ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, um, where instead of just giving somebody an infusion just for the medical effect, um, having preparation and okay. integration around it to try to like make that effect be more lasting or penetrating more deeply to some of the underlying issues Mm -hmm. so ketamine since it's been legal this whole time there's less research on it because um which is actually interesting though i say that that out loud i was like i was like there's less research on it because people don't need to have research to legalize it like a lot of the research that's happening with mdma and psilocybin is i think of it as like proof of concept research it's kind of like yeah. We know that it works, but we have to right. prove it. And it takes a lot of time and money to prove it and to get things to a phase three trial to prove it and make sure that it's safe for the public or that we have like some sort of um, mechanisms in place to ensure safety. And mm-hmm. um, so that's where a lot of the research dollars have been spent for those. Whereas for ketamine, um, it's already out there and people are more just experimenting. I think it would be great if there was more research out there for ketamine which is what i hope will happen once the other medicines are legal too which will be true research like asking a curious question that you don't know the answer to and figuring it out um, based on what you see um like what 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 is what medicines are good for what population and when Mm -hmm. and what dose and with what therapies and um, you know, with how does music affect the situation? How does, you know, therapist training affect it? Like X, Y, and Z? What setting is the best? Can we do group settings? Can we do outdoor settings and things like that? Um, but mm. I, I'm not, I'm not that familiar with the ketamine, ketamine research like that. So as far as I know, there's a lot less research on it, but people are doing a lot more different things. Some people are doing different types of dosing, like, 
um, oral and sublingual or I am mm-hmm. uh, not not sublingual um, nasal intranasal I am intramuscular or intravenous IV um, they're doing it sometimes only in the office sometimes people go home and are able to use it independently at home there's some scary things happening like you know just really kind of slapdash over the phone ketamine services um, and it's it's scary because a ketamine can be habit forming that's what i thought yeah definitely yeah. i mean like whether there's some sort of pharmacological underpinning to that or it's more of a psychological addiction it happens to people definitely. and b it can mess you up it can just make you bring you to a really weird space it can also have um damage to your bladder and urinary system is that something that would just be like random it's not something that's common i guess is the way it's I'm not common to that's more like that's 10 that's largely like with chronic use okay yeah 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 i, I personally wouldn't recommend it some people have asked me before and i'm like i don't really recommend it just you know there's nature has an intelligence behind it it's good to like connect with things that come from the earth is mm-hmm. kind of my perspective mm-hmm. of course i think like on some level opiates come from the earth mm-hmm. they you do. know as do scorpions and things o- like that opium yeah yeah and but, no but opium know. like used in a good way like i think opiates absolutely have a place that's true like a healing place i mean i used to work in oncology and hospice like it's morphine is a wonderful drug actually when, when yeah when that's you need true. it right yeah. i know someone that was an alcoholic and they damaged their shoulder and had to take morphine and they took it they prescribed it and then when the time was up they had extra and they just threw it away uh-huh. so obviously it can be used even by someone that has a history of addiction so yeah um so like kind of what I'm wondering about is like wh- where are we at with I guess the legalization process Wait, with I just wanted, uh, yeah I actually I didn't I didn't bounce finish. back I'm sorry I didn't finish <laughs> now that you're saying that I didn't finish cool, cool. just the first part though yep. and the, so like just in terms of research like ketamine's usually has been studied mostly for PTSD okay um it's in phase three trials it's actually very very close to being rescheduled they've been saying that for a while it feels like for the last ten years everything's been very very close but right now it's actually really close where in the next year or two it could be rescheduled to um to schedule three prescribable and then psilocybin also um is in phase three trials for depression and also treatment resi- well i don't know if it's phase three for treatment resistant depression but it's more so used for depression and also um, end-of-life anxiety is another, or serious illness-related anxiety is mm. another one that it's been used for um, more so. And there's some other, like, smaller studies. It's been used, like, um, psilocybin's been used. Actually, no, I shouldn't say that. There's other small studies in other specific populations and more specifics coming up more and more, but those are, like, the broad strokes. And... Yeah. And then the legal landscape. Um, so right now, like I said, ketamine's legal. So mm-hmm. it's prescribable. Um, you know, in all 50 states, you're going to find ketamine clinics. And like I said, there's a huge range of the quality of services that you could receive there. But some people are doing really, really good work with ketamine. Mm. And um, MDMA and psilocybin are still Schedule One, So only legal in a research context. Like a research study is where, is where a person could receive a legal dose, except in Oregon. Oregon has created right. this uh, supported adult use paradigm where there are service centers for psilocybin. Um, you the there's Oregon has a structure to certify service centers. Um, 
I don't want to say growers or like I forget the word I'm like cultivators for. cultivators maybe. Yeah. yeah mushroom cultivators um, sounds right and practitioners okay so like a practitioner would go to a training program oh and then also they certify training programs and so then a person in Oregon with without a diagnosis or without needing to have any specific reason can go to a service center go through a screening process to make sure it's safe for them to find a clinician or a practitioner rather that they're that it's a good match for them that's willing to work with them um, that feels like it's going to be beneficial and then do have a, a psilocybin medicine experience either in a one-to-one setting or in a group setting in or or even they can do microdosing too on in, their own in like in, in their... no it has to be in the service oh, center but yeah, the amount say. of time that you have to spend at the service center depends on the dose so if it's microdosing um you only have to stay there for an hour i think interesting because yeah. i could imagine like after an hour it could kick in stronger than you think of course they're supposed to be like accurately dosing you but you yeah. never know how sensitive people well, are the, stuff, the but... schedule for the time is a little funny like you can tell that in oregon like the regulators like it's oregon don't no you can tell that they <laughs> did like you can tell there's there's some things that were done really really well and there's some things that were like why did that happen do the regulators really know what they're doing okay and there's probably going to be a lot of ups and downs in that state um, I think more ups than downs. I think it's going to be huge and highly beneficial for people. And I think it's wonderful that they made it non-medical uh-huh. because I believe that <clears throat> these right. are yes. just rights. You know, these are can be used as a rite of passage for anybody. And and why wait until you're depressed or you have end of life anxiety? <laughs> we all have end of life anxiety, whether Some we have level, a diagnosis yeah. or not. Uh-huh. Like you can just go to those medicines to work with them almost as a preventative or just because you want to have that communion that sacred communion and i think it's beautiful that they allowed it to be that way that the people that um, are practitioners don't have to have a therapy or a medical background they just have to have a high school degree and take a training program which is also like a little scary how how intensive is the training program though usually about a year long or like maybe less than that but a little more intensive like the, the program i work for is um synthesis and they did um that's based in amsterdam it it started off in amps their their psychedelic their psilocybin retreats were in amsterdam okay and then they started a training program which is worldwide and then long story about synthesis like they've kind of gone through some big ups and downs over the last year Uh but they did um right now they're Oh, gosh. Well, right now they're based technically out of Chicago, but they are associated, managed by this company called Retreat Guru, which is in Vancouver or something somewhere in British Columbia. Um, But they did have a cohort of Oregon students, and um, I lost my train of thought. Well, maybe it'll come back. Uh So... (laughs) Uh, first thing, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I, I wanted to actually ask you about that earlier about like, what if you just like don't have depression, but you're just wanting to explore your mind or your emotions. And, you know, so that's really awesome that Oregon is doing that. I hope that that is a model that gets implemented in many other places. Yep. That's super cool. I'm very happy about that. I did not know that. Um, the other thing I was thinking of is in terms of like, okay, if you only have a high school diploma, like... In our in the mainstream American culture, on some level, there could be some like hierarchy around like, oh, we need more education. Just my personal perspective is like, you know, you can be highly, highly educated and then do something like what Nazi Germany did, 
Yeah. You know, or you could be someone that's way more heart centered, but not so intellectually minded and yeah. be super compassionate and caring and like help people through trauma and recover. Yeah. So I feel like if people understand the medicine and they understand like the importance of compassion, then it's not a big deal from where I'm sitting. But yeah. at the same time, like there are probably some clinical things that need to get like approved through the state and the country about how things are done that you need to have a certain degree of knowledge about. Um, it is interesting only a year. But, yeah, I mean, because I, I can see how, like, if this was a program where you go through training for only a year, there could be a lot of issues that come up with yeah. that because it's... So, okay, now ahead. I can tell yeah. you more I'm, where my train went, was going. Um, so the synthesis program, as an example, mm-hmm. um, I've been working there for two, two years or, oops, two years or maybe, has it been two or maybe just, no, two years. Um, and... I think it's a wonderful program. I, I'm really, really blessed to work there. Um, they are one of the programs that doesn't require you to have a degree or a specialty or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, they used to screen a little bit more for people that have had like at least some deep work working with people, whether that's maybe it's as a psychologist, maybe it's as a yoga teacher, maybe it's as a coach, you know. They want someone that's helped people through. Yeah, like, that's like just yeah. had experience with people and helping sure. them through stuff and um although they've now it's open to anybody and and i think the thing i like about this program is that a lot of times people leave feeling that they know less than when they started okay because they come in and it has a four lens approach so there's the embodied lens cognitive sacred wisdom and relational and they have a wide variety of kind of like speakers and experts from different ways of practicing, including like a lot of indigenous elders that come to speak. From the Americas? The, yeah. Okay. On the sacred lens. There's a number of, of indigenous elders who have participated as lecturers. Do you know from what tribes? I'm just curious. Um, there's a Shipibo elder. There was somebody who works closely with a few different Amazonian tribes. Cool. There was originally, there was somebody like um, a Buiti elder, like with mm-hmm. the Boga, but yep. unfortunately her lecture had to get replaced for kind of technical reasons. And uh, I'm trying to think of anybody else. There's like a number of them that have been incorporated. And then some people who also just work with indigenous communities that are more like bridge people. Uh-huh. Um, and so... So people come in, and, and then there's people who with more of a relational expertise that are talking more about therapeutic paradigms. Sometimes people with more cognitive approach, like talking about psychopharmacology. Right. Um, and they're not, but at the same time, they're not, you're, it's, you're not going to become an expert at any of those one thing, any of those one aspects in a year. But it's kind of just showing you how vast and deep the territory is. So sometimes yeah. people come out being like, wow, I didn't know how much I didn't know. And like, I still want to be on this path, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna take an IFS course, and I'm gonna study a little bit more about, um, you know, pharmacology and this, and then I want to, and maybe apprentice with somebody before I think about starting doing this on my own. Or some people are like, I've been working with clients as a breath worker for 20 years. Actually, this isn't that big of a leap for me, and after this program, I feel ready. Um, That's cool because I could see that a lot of people who come to the program would be really passionate about yeah. the material. So it's yeah. like, you don't have to be too concerned that they're just like trying to rush through it and get like certification or something like that, that 
even if they do get the certification, that curiosity is something that's like it's a passionate thing. They're not going to yeah. just drop, you know, oh, now I have certification. I can stop learning now. Yeah. My guess is most of these people are like excited to keep learning and they want to keep going. So, yeah. And then another part of the program is trying to help people see their limitations. Right. And so to understand, like, maybe it's not appropriate for me to work with somebody with super complex trauma mm-hmm. or at least not alone. You know, maybe, um, you know, maybe knowing when to like try to refer them to somebody else or get other people on your team um, or maybe like maybe it's only appropriate maybe that person really should only work with other people for a while and not be starting off as a solo practitioner so it's kind of trying to get you to see that because the research studies have been done in controlled populations there's a pretty strict exclusion criteria like nobody with a family history of schizophrenia um, nobody like even in the end of life it wasn't end of life. It was cancer-related anxiety trials. The people weren't truly end of life. If they were too sick, they were not going to be in the study. Why was that? Um, partly or, or just the whole thing, not just that one group. The whole thing, the strict criteria? Yeah, just why? Because, well, I mean, firstly, a lot of those were phase two trials where you're just demonstrating safety. And so okay. you want to... <clears throat> um, yeah, you want to you show that you're able to have a safe experience. And if you exclude people... I mean, it's not safe for some people. It's like in terms of people with a family history of schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. it's not to say that you could never work with those medicines. And I think down the line, we'll have more research and more people with experience who will say like, this is how you can work with these medicines with people in that situation or, or truly not. Some people are not appropriate for it. Guys, you have a question about my my interrupting your flow here? Um, No, go ahead. Okay. Because it's interesting, like... This is where things get kind of funny with definition stuff because, like, in the shamanic traditions, I'm sure you know, like, mm-hmm. they say you're schizophrenic. No, no, I'm sorry. In in our West, yeah. whatever America culture, you're schizophrenic. I don't like the word Western because, like, Peru is I actually know. farther west, I, I think, know. than the, you know, know. New York. It's so weird. it's like modern culture. I don't know what the word is, but then maybe that's modern like modern dominant culture. Something. I don't know. You know, um, We'll find a better word for it. West doesn't make any sense because if you go far enough west, you wind up There's in China. There's this guy who so. says, um, this guy, um, <laughs> Stephen Jenkinson, who writes about dying. He says the dominant North American culture. Okay. That's the way he says yeah, it. Yeah, the dominant culture, something <laughs> like that. Canada. But we might say west because we're just, you know, lazy. Yeah. So um, where schizophrenia, it's like there's something wrong with the person. You know, that's like, but then you go to Lakota with Black Elk where he's exhibiting quote unquote schizophrenic symptoms. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, no, he needs to go do a vision quest. Yeah. And he's going to sweat lodge. Mm-hmm. And he's and he has medicine for the whole culture. And then he becomes a saint mm-hmm. for the Lakota and for the Catholics, which is fascinating. Um, and so it's interesting because it's like generally the people who are the most messed up and schizophrenic tend to be like the real healers and the visionaries and the shamanic practitioners of the culture. So it's just, I'm just curious, like, what are the people in, like, this field saying about that? Because that is a real thing. I think what people say is, gen- and I and I think this is true. So just to take a step back. So, like, when you bring these, there's a difference between a carefully controlled environment, which could be either a research study where you have strict exclusion tr- criteria and two therapists there and lots of eyes on everything, or it could even be like even maybe a more traditional healer like environment could be more carefully controlled because maybe you're going to go somewhere and have like different ceremonies of protection like a 
a shaman who really knows how to navigate invisible realms and like has seen a lot of things that that has a little bit more safety involved in sometimes but like when it's training people with a year-long training program and then creating these service centers and saying anybody from the public can come in and do a, a screening which the screening is very loose in Oregon the only um absolute exclusion criteria is if you're on lithium because that's contraindicated for taking psilocybin yeah okay or if you are actively suicidal i think those are the only two that's really interesting though but go ahead i'm, I'm just curious about so that like one, there's but... not a family history exclusion criteria okay. i think that you, you have to ask about it mm-hmm. but it's not hard and fast it's more up to the practitioner which is like it's that's very loose and so yeah. like when you think about so another thing we can talk about is harm reduction and just the fact that like I know that I think more I think more good than harm is going to come from this mm-hmm. whole grand not, I don't want to say grand experiment that sounds cavalier but this beautiful undertaking that we're taking as a culture but I know there is going to be harm mm. um, and so and so when you think about things like from a population perspective um it's kind of a different story, you know what I mean? But from an individual perspective, or not even that, but I guess one way to look at it is, I think what some researchers say is basically that psilocybin, for example, is good if you're trying to kind of loosen your brain up. Like if you're in a rut, if you're in a depressive rut, you mm-hmm. have this kind of repetitive beliefs that you're kind of just stuck in, or or if you're in an anxious rut mm-hmm. um, and you're kind of looping on something, then psilocybin is great to just allow more brain plasticity and allow you to have access to other possibilities. Sure. And of course, if you just go back to the same conditions and the same patterning that you had before, then you're probably going to get back in that same rut, but it opens up this period of allowing for more potential. And if you kind of seed yourself during that time with with good influences and whether that's going to be relational or spiritual or physical, then you might have a chance to create lasting change. But if your tendency is to have like kind of a looseness in your, if your issue is like my connection with consensual reality is often looser than other people's and that gets me into trouble. Most artists perhaps. Yeah. Then psilocybin (laughs) might not be the most therapeutic for you. There might be other practices that might be more beneficial, like maybe just things that are more grounding. Um, or maybe you need to do a lot of grounding practices before you could have a safe experience with psilocybin. Like I know a family member who had an experience with um, a like a psychedelic experience with ayahuasca, who I truly believe like the this person ended up having to be hospitalized. This person ended up having to be hospitalized like a few months afterwards. Wow. And I think it could have been related to many things. It wasn't just that. But I think it could have been related to that experience with ayahuasca that he had that kind of loosen things up even more. And that was already like a tendency for him. I've definitely heard this happening with some people. Um, it's definitely a thing. My my thought was perhaps like the reason that they aren't like open to it at this point is they also want to like protect a program where they don't want to have someone that's like pretty much going to just take their life and then have them go yeah. to a clinic and then all of a sudden it's like people you know really conservative people are like oh look this, yep. oh, this clinic and now these things are going to yeah. make people kill everybody and mm-hmm. you know very ignorant perspective that people take on stuff mm-hmm. but um yeah i can i can understand that um and it's it's also like it's 
initially my response was just thinking like that's strange because the people who need it most are people probably suicidal yeah but so, it has to be there needs to be a, 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 a well understood way to deal with that yeah like if um yeah if somebody's actively suicidal mm -hmm. then it's contraindicated in oregon um, maybe for that person, it would be better for them to, like, maybe they could have ketamine therapy, um, get to a place where they're more, le they're, where they're less actively suicidal, maybe do some work with a therapist of some sort and kind of just stabilize a little bit more mm -hmm. and then maybe be able to have a psilocybin experience because it can, it can, um, uh, in, certain cases yeah it's it's tricky because if you're working with people with treatment resistant depression like suicidality is going to be there alongside of that and those are the people that need the most help and we don't want to destabilize people with this medicine and push them in that direction push them over the edge and so to speak which i think is a risk it's interesting too because what i'm thinking about as you're sharing all this is like so much of what the mental health crisis is a result of is like fractured community, fractured relationship yeah. is a good way to Absolutely. put it. Cause it's not just from fractured communities, fractured with yourself, from what the food you eat is from nature, um, from family, from friends, from expressing yourself, you know, you're in the super confined capitalist society, like, you know, in your little box and you go to this box and to that box, you're totally dehumanized on many levels. And I so hope. it's like even taking psilocybin, it's like can allow you to break through that temporarily, but then it's like, is there a is there an integration program with the organ thing where they're working like okay how can we mend communal humanistic relationships as a whole because i know like as a community we're doing that here mm -hmm. where it's like okay let's live communally because that's where you know it doesn't matter what practices you do if you're totally isolating yourself you're gonna wind up miserable yeah. or you might wind up suicidal which is an extreme version of it yeah. so you know i, I just to me, I know that's an extremely important thing because we're do we're living that here in New York, and so I'm just curious, like, what they're doing about that in Oregon. Yeah, um, yeah, a hundred percent agreed. And I feel like what these medicines, like, let's take psilocybin for example, often point us to, is just that, like, connection with yourself, connection with others. It's a fungus. It's like <laughs> yeah. you know, it's a fungal network, network uh -huh. mycelial <laughs> network, yeah. and so. Um, a lot of people come out of those experiences with those types of realizations of wanting to be more connected right. or feeling more connected and, and wanting to actualize that in their lives. And I think that is is the ethos of this movement. I think that the people who are doing this work gener generally across the board feel that way. They like, understand that. understand much, that, yeah. you know, community is the medicine and there's a lot of discussion about that and how can we shift our practices away from this western <coughs> psychotherapeutic model which can be very individualistic mm -hmm. and look at more community like even from community preparation dosing and integration sessions and you know or ceremonial a ceremonial more ceremonial approach to the journey mm -hmm. um and how can we have long-term integration? Like there's a woman, Rosalind Watts, she's pretty well known. Um, she worked in the Imperial College of London on their depression study. And she has spoken about kind of feeling disillusioned after that. Cause she kind of rose to like some sort of like, you know, low level fame. And she was like, but truly I didn't really know what I was doing. Like I was new to this. There's people working in the underground who have way more experience than I do. Mm -hmm. I wrote a paper on um, saying that 
communitas is an important factor. She coined this term communitas is like community element is an important factor in people's healing. She's like, who did I think I was? Like, that's like a duh, you know? <laughs> it's a funny way to, it's like, a, it's like a trendy way to say community or something. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and she was like, then she kind of got on the speaker circuit and she started to get, she was in the academic world and was like a little protective of her ideas and started to get paranoid and she said like she kind of just felt like the whole thing was just not going in the right direction for her and now she's created a program that's more focused on integration it's a 12 i believe a 12 or 13 month program um for people who have had a psychedelic experience or not just people who want like a community support program for living Mm -hmm. um it's based on like kind of a celtic wisdom of trees type of orientation like each month has a different tree that you connect with like the mm. kind of elements or characteristics of that tree and there's group sessions and there's you know some i think once you go through the program you can then be sort of a facilitator of the program so it's very just gra- grassroots oriented and so i think that's a good example of what's kind of growing out of this that people are seeing like even even having you know three integration sessions with a with your practitioner afterwards is not it's not true integration, you know. That's no, a good start. That's a good. Radically, I mean, you gotta, I mean, you're having a radically explosive experience. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I wrote this song a long time ago. I don't remember the words exactly, but it's, I, I pitch it some words off the fact that I think that like the bomb was dropped at Hiroshima the same time that we met Maria Sabina. Oh really? I made a little, I made a rhyme about it. Uh huh. Um, that's part's not important, but the idea of like this is like an atom bomb you know on your mind psychic bomb yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so it's like if you're going to do that to yourself which uh you know that sounds a little rough but ultimately it's very it's the opposite of hiroshima it's very beautiful and encompassing right but if you're going to do that um then your life is going to shift in a lot of ways and and you would want to have something on a parallel level where it's like to just have this incredibly beautiful experience but then go back to like you know a very depressing reality is a a very poor way to integrate such an experience. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So like looking at um, ways to have more community, more support, also more reciprocity. Like how can we give back to indigenous communities? Mm-hmm. How can we heal some of the harms of colonialism? Like that's a big question. But like, for example, there's this woman that I, She's a learning facilitator for synthesis, and she just gave a lecture so beautiful about the work that she's done in um, Mexico with a um, uh, Yaqui community. It's like from what Don Juan was mm-hmm. a tribe part of, yeah. And like how I think they were kind of, I think she originally created some sort of center for like ancestral culture knowledge related to medicines. But then people in that community came to her and they were like, you're a psychologist, right? Like, we need your help. Like, our youth are in a lot of trouble, and they're um, addicted to methamphetamine, and they're depressed, and they're suicidal, and can you help us? And so she and her team created some, like, basically programs to support them, to help themselves, to help their youth, Mm. through bringing back ancestral ways, ancestral medicines, or medicines from other territories, like bringing in, like, people from the Hunikuin with ayahuasca, or, like... um, I don't remember which people they used with psilocybin and that, then that the whole program is also like now moving to other tribes who want to replicate it. So it's kind of like a intertribal healing process mm. where they're learning from each other, which is really interesting. Cause like, you know, peyote is not native to the plains tribes of North America. 
it migrated there in the 1800s um, from, you know, it, it grows only like in the south and the desert in the like in regions of Mexico and Texas. But like mm-hmm. it was, I don't know the whole story of it, but I know that it like was offered to the other tribes to like help them get through a the you know, genocidal like, like yeah. experience mm-hmm. and like just being a survival medicine and helping them to connect with that healing and spiritual communion and they incorporated it into their like ways of praying and it it became kind of like hybrid Mm -hmm. and even then became a christian church element which you know that that could be there for a number of reasons but um (laughs) anyway like it's and i've heard other people say that you know if you want to be authentic to ayahuasca if you truly want to be authentic don't go to like Peru and sit with the Shipibo and try to be a Shipibo, adapt it because I want, that's what people have been doing for thousands of years. They've been adapting it to their culture. And that's why you have different cultures that use ayahuasca in different ways. And um, I mean, there's, this is the most interesting and difficult topic for me. This is controversial. Controversial, like basically how do we honor Mm-hmm. And learn from indigenous traditions without appropriating, without continuing colonial practices, without commodifying. Um, and that is like, that's where there's a lot of aliveness and richness and also a lot of potentials for missteps and mistakes yeah, and, and getting, you know, fingers pointed at you if you try to, to, to tread it all in that area. But like, it's it's needed. It's absolutely needed. It's needed for us to also to learn from those who have a lot of experience and also to reclaim some of our indigenous traditions, like looking at maybe our own ancestries. Like that's what I'm doing right now with a program that I'm creating for nurses is looking back a little bit at the history of Western medicine and looking back at people like Hildegard of Bingen in the mid- middle medieval times okay. and like the four humors, the four elements that were present in medieval medicine and I read. I just looked up this awesome article about like the prayers that people used to say in medieval times when they were gathering herbs from the garden, like how they prayed to their medicine, and that's from our history as Western European people. So like, that's where I think, that's where I think the beautiful and complex work uh-huh. lies ahead. And then there's, I'm thinking about like, there's the Illusion Mysteries, mm-hmm. where I guess they called it what like. Kaikon or something. Kaikion. Kaikion, mm-hmm. which was probably ergot mm-hmm. derivative, which is what LSD is, comes out of, mm-hmm. um, which they would take that in some kind of like highly ritualized fashion. I always think about Burning Man when I think about that for some reason. Uh-huh. I have this sense of like all these like Greek like plays and theater and costumes, but they're they're enacting some kind of like this crazy ritual mm-hmm. and no one really understands it. It happens like once a year or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, there's definitely things pertaining to that. What I was kind of thinking about also when you're saying, like, how do you not appropriate? I feel like the best thing to do is to go to indigenous people Mm -hmm. as an authority Mm -hmm. as opposed to going to them, like, trying to get something Mm -hmm. or trying to impose something. And, like, oh, like, I've studied all this stuff. But go to them and be like, well, you know, how do you with the genuine curiosity as to like Mm -hmm. what they have to share? Mm -hmm. That seems to be from the indigenous uh, elders that myself and you as well have been in contact with seem to advocate as much as possible like listen to what they have to say Mm -hmm. but then also too it's like they that the indigenous elders is not like a uniform agreeing population they disagree amongst each other about all kinds of things about how something should be done um i know that 
uh, people like uh, Leonard Crow Dog was um, had went through a lot of struggles about bringing like the Sundance out to people of different cultures and things mm-hmm. like that, where it was specifically just for Lakota Plains Indians people, and he bringing it out and brought a ton of controversy and a lot of issues. I know that was a similar thing with a lot of the plant medicines as well. So it's kind of like. You know, you're never going to find a uniform agreement about that, but will you ever find a uniform agreement about anything in life? Probably not. Um, But at the same time, like to be respectful and just, and you'll listen to different people about their reasonings as to why they feel a certain way or this way versus that way. And, you know, try to understand that as much as possible. Um, The other thing that comes up when I'm thinking about all this stuff is like the uh, dominant culture's tendency to monetize everything mm-hmm. and i mean i i I think we've seen that stuff where they're trying to put a patent on like laying on a couch yeah it's like that's pretty disgusting in a lot of ways mm-hmm. i think and like pretty disturbing because it shows like where their mentality is at it's not really about like helping people it's like okay um how much money can we get mm-hmm. for doing this mm-hmm. and you know I, I think like it's i was reading an article that said like you know ayahuasca for instance has been used for hundreds of years in a way where money's been derived from it like you go to a healer you'd give them some money for the service and they would do a ceremony for you and they'd help you come back to like a homeostasis. So it's not something that's like totally wrong. I don't think to derive like, you know, income from helping people. But if you're trying to like cap, um, put a patent on laying on a couch, yeah. you got to think about your ethical yeah. focus there. I saw an interview <laughs> with, um, I think it was a vice interview with the CEO of Compass Pathways, which is like, they're the ones doing it. They're yeah. the ones, yeah, okay. doing those patents that most people think of as like the, the dark force in the field. Um, <laughs> I called them disgusting. So yeah, <laughs> it's kind of harsh, right. I guess. Right, Jerry. I, spilled, <laughs> I spilled the water. Oh, I spilled the water. Okay. Well, that 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 could be seen as a good auspicious omen. Okay. So we'll just let it be. <laughs> yep. um, I just spilled a cup of water. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he said in this interview, the interview got cut short because he didn't like the questions. Him and his partner that was with him didn't like the questions that were being asked. But he was saying, basically, we're trying to help people who are really sick, treatment-resistant depression, who are suicidal. We want, you know, I, I think he got into that work because of people that he lost. Okay. And he said, it takes a lot of money to get something FDA approved a lot to do these research projects that are required to get something FDA approved. If we're going to put in that much investment, we need to have a return on it. And the only way to do that is to patent it. But to patent laying on a bed. Well, that's, that's silly. That's, that's I mean, silly. that's like, it, I don't think those, on, those things didn't actually go through as far as I know. Okay. But I think, someone but had the idea. It's pretty that. audacious, pretty audacious yeah. holding somebody's hand. They tried to patent their therapy <laughs> and those were elements of it. And it's, it's sad. Yeah, it's I mean, it's just like, I guess when you think about what these plant medicines are medicines, because not all of them are plants, mm-hmm. like really represent you know, dissolving of boundaries and like an opening to God's universal love. Mm-hmm. So and then it's trying to say like that we're the only people that can hold someone's hand or will sue you. It just seems like a pretty deep, like contradiction to that mm-hmm. kind of fundamental teaching to it. And like I said, I don't think there's any personally speaking, someone might disagree with me. I don't think there's anything wrong with like deriving an income or like um you know having a monetary element included in it because we live in that kind of society in order to function in order for it to be successful like you said the patents are expensive or whatever the uh, fda approval mm-hmm. is expensive well, research the research yeah. okay the research is expensive you have to fund things you have to 
um, be able to move things in a world that functions through money. So it's okay. But there's a moment where, like, you know, that take goes way too far, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah. And then you got to wonder about, like, well, if that's something that they're doing, like, you know, on the public, announcing that, uh-huh. what, what, <laughs> what, what, what are they doing? doing? What, what's going on yeah. behind the scenes, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and thinking about, like, okay, I'll talk on this one thing, but there's another thing I want to talk okay. about, too. Yeah. So thinking about synthetic medicines is, is an interesting one, too, because, like, I think... Um, some like traditional people feel that it's just like damaging to the spirit of the plant or the fungus or the cactus that like to, to, to do that. That any money's involved. Well, no, to, to create a synthetic medicine. Oh, okay. And to kind of, cause some people create synthetics and they're like, like there's this company, um, journey, geez, journey clinical or journey lab, something like that. Journey lab, I think. Um, where they're focusing on mescaline and they have to their credit like some portion of their business model where they're they created like a a board of indigenous people to guide some sort of element of their practice and to give them money and that part of it has been rocky getting off the ground because it's complex and people disagree with each other and they and some of yeah but then on the other hand they're creating synthetic mescaline i think they're going to try to do some patenting patenting of what they're doing and they're like well that we honor the indigenous ways we honor that there's like a relationship there but this is synthetic so it really you know that that has nothing really to do with that and we're going to go ahead and take a more capitalist approach there like unabashedly because hopefully that can really help a lot of people who need help take a really clinical approach i think they're using it for alcoholism and addiction how do they say though it's not connected at all with anything native i mean they're just coming from that plant they're saying we're not trying to patent peyote we're not trying to Uh patent san pedro but we're working with mescaline like this this particular synthetic mescaline it's a chemical so like let us have our chemical to to run with and work with and Um, and so some people think that's still fishy and some people think we should just really be going to the elders and, um, letting them lead. But that's like, will that happen in our, will that happen in our society? Yeah. Unlikely. It seems, I mean, I would say, you know, just going to, to Western culture, like Plato said, like in a, you know, his, uh, whatever version, ideal version of society, there's like philosopher Kings. There's people that are like Uh the wise elders guiding the the society. Uh So I, I agree with that perspective. You should do that, but go ahead. Yeah. And then, then, then the other side of it though, it's like sometimes the synthetics could help protect the actual plants so that from over harvesting so that those medicines like peyote, which is threatened Mm -hmm. can be available for traditional uses. So Hmm. I don't know. There's different, there's a lot of different ways to look at that. I, I mean, just to, just some thoughts on it. I don't have my mind made up about it, but uh, human beings have been mixing and mashing the elements in all shapes and forms, you know, forever. Mm-hmm. That's like what, in a lot of ways, makes us human is mm-hmm. our capacity to do that with things. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with it. I think it's more the way that it's done that would um, feel that it's either in alignment or out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for instance, like they say, like ayahuasca is not something that naturally occurs mm-hmm. in nature. You yeah. know, it's it's human composed, as yeah. is a number of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's like, uh, I think it's an important consideration, but 
the main thing that comes to me about it is is it the way that you're doing it is it is it done in a way that's like honoring the sacred and it's like mm-hmm. honoring nature yep. and it's honoring and people so that's that's the thing i yeah. really want to talk about because this is what i'm most interested and excited about right now so these they are sacred medicines like so many people the majority of people who take them have a sacred experience have an experience of connection with divinity with um with ancestors with nature in a way that's really deep and really profound and like I was at a retreat with somebody because I did have the privilege of going to Oregon and doing a training through synthesis um, and taking psilocybin in a certified center Um, and there's a woman in that program and I'm not going to share a story in depth because I don't have permission but she had a really beautiful experience and she um, said afterwards she realized just like how the few times previously where she had like had mushrooms available to her recreationally she was like wow we really were just not respecting the medicine Uh and you know hey that's where she came from nobody had ever taught her anything different but like when she really deeply experienced it in like a beautiful container and had like that blossoming transformative experience she was like oh wow like this is sacred stuff and so that's just the nature of these medicines and then how do we create an experience that honors that that works kind of cross-culturally and in our western culture and you know there are some groups like there's a group called ligare called, that are taking what's it called ligare l-i-g-r-a-e um that are taking like a christian approach there's like different religious groups there's like there are jewish psychedelic societies this there's, is in oregon no ligare is like a national okay or like nonprofit, just nurturing psychedelic Christian practice. Um, and, but then there's a lot of people that don't have a specific religious practice mm-hmm. or aren't of an indigenous lineage and still want to have a sacred experience and find ways to honor this medicine and have ceremony. Mm-hmm. And so how do we, how do we create like pathways for that? How do we train facilitators with the ability to do that? Um, and it's like a really big question, but also like a very beautiful and exciting one for me. Mm. Yeah. And it sounds like it's something that's going to be, well, obviously different things for different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the, I, I guess the main thing that seems to be, I'm focusing on, is like, you know, the, the mask that people wear and the costumes and the music and the decoration, that's all pretty superficial the thing that seems important is like the safety aspect of it and making sure that people are like, uh, you know taken care of if they're entering into that space because the degree of vulnerability that one enters into when they go there uh is extreme to mm-hmm. say the least mm-hmm. and so you know people aren't properly trained in understanding just like say the, the priority of safety with that mm-hmm. and that's kind of the issue but it sounds like the other things can be pretty open to just like human creativity mm-hmm. i think like i think art is a really great vehicle for it. I think it's important to go look at traditions and things from the past and so on. People have done things, but it's also really important to create your own art and your own poetry and your own symbols, your own archetypes for how, you know, meaning behind what all this stuff is. But the safety thing is something that should be a, a solid continuity mm-hmm. across the board. Yeah. 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 Yeah, like you mean like psychological safety. Yeah, and, and like of course all the issues with like, you know, when someone's like I'm, you know, in a role of a healer or a guide, mm. and then the, the power, power dynamics. dynamics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like how how is Absolutely. one managing that? That's a huge one. Because like, uh, 
just extremely obvious reasons behind that. I think we, there's been enough stories pertaining to that in the, the Wild West of all this stuff where mm-hmm. it's known that. Or not even in the Wild West, like in um, you clinical, know, clinical trials. Like with, oh, yeah. Have I you heard? Know. You should. I'm read, not surprised. You though. should look at the cover, <laughs> cover story, um, New York Magazine cover story expose. As of right now, or a couple yeah, ago it was like in the last couple of years it came okay. out, and it, I didn't even I listened to a good portion of it. I couldn't even listen to the whole thing because it was very disturbing. I mean, it was it was written by some people that are put out by some people that I feel like were a little sensationalistic. It's parts of it, or maybe just like had an axe to grind and they hadn't done their healing on it. They were still in like a wounded place, uh-huh. but then there were parts of it that were just like wow like that was done in a maps funded fda approved trial and it was videotaped and that person did that like yeah and they didn't get like any they they, you know no alarms were raised really even when people were trying to raise alarms like it's pretty disturbing actually what happened if you could say Um, this therapist like you know mdma therapy the MAPS protocols are pretty loose from my understanding. Like a manualized therapy treatment is usually pretty specific. Like it's a specific kind of therapy and they're like, there's a, a specific protocol of how you would approach things. Of course, there's always, you know, every situation is unique. But in the MAPS trial, it's pretty wide. Like people can bring in different types of their therapeutic background to it. And so... Um, and it's also a little more hands-on during the session, or it can be. It's not necessarily just have, like, you know, headphones and music and hold somebody's hand if they need it. There can be a little bit more back and forth during the session. Uh-huh. And this person was, the client had sexual trauma, and the therapist couple, who I believe were husband and wife, um, were helping her work through it, you know, doing things that included, like, full body like embrace in a bed and like almost like I think kind of forced contact, you know, that's the long and short of it. And then after the study, they had contact with her um, and in a way that was inappropriate. And that's the long and short of it. Like you can listen to the cover story if you want to get all the details. Yeah. I mean, like that is on some level shocking that happened. It's also like not surprising because people, because this is what, this is what kind of comes to mind. It's like when you listen to indigenous elders who facilitate these type of things, what they talk about is like an extreme level of of like self-control and discipline Mm -hmm. in order to like, you know, keep the hygiene of the container. Mm -hmm. And like, that's something that you can't be cultivated in one year training program (laughs) like that. And that's not something that could be cultivated even from like necessarily a 10 year training program. That's something that you is like, um, it's not the, like, for instance, you get a degree in the intellect. It's not really a, a defining, um, a definition of your capacity for self-control in, like, challenging situations or a definition of yeah. your character. Well, one great resource for that is, is um, so in, we're talking about ethics, but we're talking about not just ethics on a piece of paper, but how you live your life and how, you, yeah. especially when you're confronted with things that, Maybe you're extreme or touching on certain parts of you that you weren't prepared for or you didn't even see. Yeah, that's what medicine will do. Yeah, exactly. So there's um, a great resource that's used in a lot of the programs, which is this program called Inner Ethics by a woman named Kylia Taylor. And she was involved in a lot of breathwork communities. I think also maybe psychedelic communities because she worked with Stan Groff. 
and um, she's created this program and it's really beautiful. Like she has a number of tools and one of them is, it's basically based on the chakras and it's like, how might you be influenced in each of these centers? Like, mm -hmm. um, like in, a, in your, you know, in your third chakra center, you might be influenced like in a desire for positive outcomes and a desire for wanting to prove your power, or you might be having a fear of not being effective. And, you know, she talks about in a lot of situations, the sex and the money center is like the most tricky and often the most, that's where a lot of the problems come from. But it's basically a program of having like a living moral code and a living process for how to tell when you're being challenged, like, mm. and bringing a little bit more conscious awareness because sometimes I think that's where the problems happen where you don't even know that there's an eth ethical challenge happening you're you're just acting in some kind of unconscious way yeah. and then afterwards you realize oh what just happened you know and so um, that's a wonderful resource and I'm really glad to see that being incorporated into a lot of, a lot of the programs like not just the co not just ethics as in like do this and don't do that but like really how it's embodied in in your character yeah I, I don't I kind of want to go back for a second, maybe come back to this part in mm -hmm. a moment, but could you share a little bit about uh, more of your experience when you were in Oregon? Sure. Yeah. Just anything. That yeah, absolutely. So um, I went there as a, I'm a learning facilitator for the program, but I kind of went to Oregon. I asked their permission if I could just go through their Oregon program as a student so that I can be eligible for licensure in Oregon. Just for a couple of weeks, though, you um, Well, I, I was a learning facilitator for their Oregon cohort, like where we would meet weekly for two and a half hours for a year or whatever. Okay. And then there was an in-person portion, which was like a few online meetings and then a five-day retreat. So I asked if I could participate in that part of it so that I could have the full program completion so that I could apply for licensure. Um, I don't know if I'll ever do that because I don't know if I'll be going to Oregon permanently but um but it was also you know it was it was also just a really great personal experience um so we were at a beautiful retreat center called buckhorn springs it's a very natural beautiful place it's also a very significant place to has a lot of indigenous history and um so there's a lot a lot there about that but buckhorn springs was at one point going to become a service center and it never was for a number of complicated reasons. So we had the sessions in the service center in downtown Ashland. So it's like next to the, like, you know, the quickie mart mm -hmm. and like yeah. the, the, you know, and the, the lawyer's office or something. Um, it's <laughs> in a pretty nice, nicely done space, but it's still an, like an office space, but it was like, you know, they did a decent job with it. How big was the room the session um, was in? So first 10 people and two facilitators, I mean, it was like maybe two and a half times as long as this and twice as deep. So So this is I think like a twelve by six room. So it was like maybe fourteen by six. I don't know. It was like fifty by twelve. Okay, so say. you're not like in some confined space though. They no. give them like those mindfold things. We had the yeah, had the blindfolds, <laughs> we, which I I tried. I was excited to try it, but it totally wasn't my thing. Yeah, I have a pair of those, and I never used it. Uh huh. <laughs> and we had everybody had a space to lie down, but just um, in terms of like the structuring of the retreat, it was it was for people who have gone through this program, and so there were five pairs, and we had the first half of the retreat. One person would be the guide, 
Mm-hmm. And so we'd go through like a little preparation center with session with your guide. We also all, a lot of us knew each other from the program anyway, even though we were, some people were in different pods, but we'd have preparation with your guide. We'd have a little group preparation. We'd go to the service center. We'd have the session. So it was a group ceremony, but you'd also have your personal guide right there with you. So it was like, uh, for every person, there's a, a separate guide. There was, there's five pairs. So we'd go okay, go like that, Small. and then we'd go back to the retreat center, have a day for integration, and then the next day, we'd switch roles. What did what did you guys do during the ceremony? Did you just play recorded so music? During the or ceremony, they had... it was recorded music. Okay. There were two facilitators of the whole experience. Interesting, but everybody was in a lot of trust with each other, and everybody was there for the same reason, and so it ultimately went in a good direction, but not without some interesting bumps along the way. I would think so. Um, (laughs) But for me personally, I guided the first time and I received guiding the second time. And for me just to have, I had never had that therapeutic experience where you sit down, you have a one-to-one person there for you have a comfortable place to lie down if you want to, you know, you, you take the medicine and it was like, it was, it was, um, mushroom medicine it wasn't synthetic uh-huh. um it was tw- i said 25 micrograms because they measured it in micrograms which was about three grams with this strain and um and you know go deeply within no distraction your person is right there if you like I, I asked her for not very much like i think i asked her to pull the blanket on my shoulders once and at one point i was a little freaked out because there was a cemetery right behind the building mm-hmm. and just some of the things i've learned from my teacher it's like you kind of want to be careful with the environment that you're in and i was a little concerned about that so i just asked her to like energetically offer me protection from behind and she did that and i had the sense of her as like a mountain a protective mountain and then there were two, the two guides that were like energetically I felt really good with them and I I just like and it took me it took me a while to drop in and feel safe because um I have such background with sacred ceremony that it it was a little weird being in a place where there was some elements of ceremony there was like an altar but wasn't really clear what the altar was based on and and what, was that, what was on the altar? Um, there was like um, a vase with roses. And there was, when I was journeying, there was um, fake candles because you're not allowed to have candles or smoke in there. Uh-huh. And then other people could bring objects. and put, There was a few objects, but it wasn't like, you know, specifically laid out in any kind of rhyme or reason. Archetypal but I, yeah. I communed with that altar like crazy in my experience. Just the roses, the water, and the candle that wasn't real that i didn't think about not being real most of the time Uh and just to be like have the space and have the like i didn't like not to even need to leave your mat for any reason like and be attended to like that and then also the prep and the integration having somebody to talk beforehand to about it and afterwards about it like i was i and i went super deep i had Mm. like a very archetypal experience connecting with the divine feminine and like it was really beautiful and i'm really grateful for that so you're in a group Mm -hmm. though Mm -hmm. and so my question is like like 
what would happen uh, if you're with some people who are just like really loud and uh-huh. they're talking and like okay and, so uh, that kind of came up <laughs> yeah I'm just trying to so understand like, that because are there rules about that well we ha- we made agreements beforehand okay. together but they weren't like crystal clear to some people like some people like one woman wanted to like text her husband <laughs> and go outside and vape and like that was distracting <laughs> to vaping was distracting to me yeah like the texting like the facilitators were but she wanted concerned. to go outside there's an outside area. Oh, I there's thought you were like just little... like on the street. No, not Because you said it was next to a quick There's, there's like, like an internal <laughs> courtyard that's actually I got quite you. lovely. Okay. Yep. And <laughs> so it's like, it was this, it was, it was agreed upon that you're welcome to stand up. You're welcome to move around your personal space. Like you can emote, you can cry, you can laugh. Like you can be, you can have audible expressions. There was also a side room. So if it felt like it would be beneficial to that person or if it would be beneficial to the group that person could go to like the side room with their personal facilitator okay um but there was like there was definitely it was it was just an interesting paradigm because and this is what's going to happen with the rollout in oregon and other places like this was at least in the beginning of of their trauma work i think that softness can be really beneficial too definitely Yeah. yeah i mean there's no need to like yeah, it you know uh, step by step, right? But these, with these things that have been buried in people for gener- or decades, rather, it's better to take it like one step at a time and go slowly as mm-hmm. opposed to try to do it all at once, which is ultimately impossible, and leads to further complications. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I had oh, this is the other question I wanted to ask okay. you about. So, in these like traditional cultures, uh, one of the big differentiations is that. The facilitator is also taking the medicine mm-hmm. in order to gain the access and insight as to what the person is coming for healing or whatever it is they're coming for can receive and help guide in the best possible way because they're gaining the the visionary capacity to be an effective guide. And do you think that there's any possibility that that ever could become part of this modality? So in some of the MDMA trials it's in the protocol for the therapist to have their own experience at the same time, but not at the same time. Okay. Yeah. No, it's pretty strict. No, it's a pretty strict no for at the same time at this point in terms of research con- context. Yeah. But in terms of having their own experience so that they understand the medicine that they're giving to people that that is a little bit more well understood. Yeah. That, that I, makes total sense to me that they would implement that. I would expect them to do that. Yeah. And I think that they are doing that. Not always, not always, okay. but in some trials they are i think i mean i think it would be the rare person indeed that wants to administer this medicine and hasn't doesn't want to uh, experience it for themselves there's like one person i knew that she does want to see if it can be helpful to her clients and was learning to become a practitioner but she does have a family history of schizophrenia and she was okay. like concerned about doing it she hasn't done it yet at the time that i knew her she hadn't done it yet it's kind of like if you were to get a midwife that's never had birth yeah. before, it'd be kind of funny because, like, would they really be able to understand what's happening and guide you, even if someone told them what to do? My, There's a moment like, where like I have a friend through. who's a a colleague who is a psychedelic practitioner nurse, and she was a labor and delivery nurse, and she said absolutely, they can help you. Like a labor and delivery nurse does not need to be a mother. Like okay. you gain so much familiarity with the territory by walking through that territory with people day after day. Yeah, like you, you shadow somebody who's doing it and you learn the trade and or the Or work. just 
by serving the woman who's birthing. But I would, I would, uh, my opinion would be that you wouldn't just do that right away. You would first no. go through like a shadowing no, process of definitely. working with someone. Absolutely. So 100%. Learn a little more. But like that you don't have to necessarily have given birth to be a, a, an effective midwife. But maybe yeah. you're more effective after. Or maybe like, maybe there's some things that. I would hope so. Maybe, maybe there's some <laughs> things that you have to let go of. Like some people I think might have a hard time. Like might sometimes, I've heard people say that it can be complex. Like that you might be feeling too much for the person after you've given birth. Like that sometimes you need to put your other hat on that like takes a step back from that. And be more like a clinician and be like in terms like in terms of birthing yeah. process. Yeah, in terms of birthing process. Interesting. And then also like another like analog would be like a hospice. I, mean, I used to be a hospice nurse. So mm-hmm. it's like a hospice worker, hospice nurse or doctor, you know, being able to attend to a patient who's dying without having that experience themselves. That was kind of of imposed on us, unfortunately. (laughs) I mean, I think, I don't know. I I tend to agree that this is just such a unique, these are such unique medicine experiences, like, that it would be, it's enormously important, I think. I I think it's, I'm playing devil's advocate with myself. I think it's enormously important that a practitioner is really familiar with the medicine that they're serving. And like in a shamanic context, that's the, that's most of the work is like really aligning yourself with the medicine, understanding the realms and navigating those realms. And, but even just, even just having empathy for the person and having an understanding about where they could be going or the magnitude of the impact, Uh I think is really important, but is it a hundred percent essential? I wouldn't say so. No, I, I could see how it could work for sure. Yeah. in a certain way mm-hmm. uh so then the the other thing i'm thinking about it though has anyone from these programs i mean because it's like you have thou- tens of thousands of years of people doing these things pretty much mm-hmm. and pretty much every single culture the practitioner facilitators taking it with the, the passengers mm-hmm. yeah has anyone in the in this realm like uh who maybe is more in policy making about it, like really considered that and then like, isn't it a little you know, naive to think that we can create a version where we're not doing it at the yeah, same time? Yeah. You know, that's, that's really, that's, that brings up a, a, a big, a big difference of philosophy for sure. Um, I'll tell you about a little experience that I had. I was at a conference called Philadelphia in Philadelphia where I was presenting and the keynote speaker, opening keynote speaker was, uh, I can't remember his first name, but I think it's Barrett is his last name, Dr. Barrett, who's taken over for Roland Griffiths as the Johns Hopkins director of their Center for Psychedelics and Consciousness. And so he gave his presentation, which kind of did, was like a high level overview of some of the work they're doing there and some, some advice for people who are creating a psychedelic center. And you know, nothing, nowhere in there was indigenous medicine mentioned whatsoever. And I was just like sitting in my seat, kind of seething, mm-hmm. kind of be like, guys, it's 2023. Like, can we at least have a little acknowledgement? Like, this is unacceptable. That was my feeling. It was like, you know, like at the least you say like, this is research studies that we're doing. And we just want to acknowledge that these medicines, you know, we're not the first people to exper- to experience, experiment with this territory yeah. and like, you know, just acknowledgement. But there was none. So I raised my hand and I asked a question. I was like, just wanting to know, you know, you're a center for consciousness research. Have you, do you have any collaborations with indigenous cultures who have been exploring consciousness with these medicines for thousands of years? 
I don't know why that just happened. <laughs> oh yeah, no, the metronome's supposed to. Be, okay, now that now that my giant djembe and abuelo <laughs> from, from flute um, and didgeridoo sounds are gone, Stephanie can continue sharing what she was gonna ask the guy from Johns Hopkins. <laughs> You're exploring consciousness. Have you thought about collaborating it's a metronome sound? Okay, okay, it's the Q and okay. Long and short of it, no. Um, he said, and he said, I'll be, just want to admit, acknowledge this is not. So, this guy from Johns Hopkins, I, I raised my hand and I was like, You're exploring consciousness. Have you thought about collaborating with indigenous people who have been so? navigating <laughs> realms of consciousness with <laughs> sacred medicines for thousands of years? And he said, long and short of it, no. Um, he said, and he said, I'll be, just want to admit, acknowledge this is not my area of expertise. And basically these worlds are just too far apart. Um, so he was like, for example, you know, for example, a colleague of mine was talking to an indigenous shaman and they asked, how do you prepare the medicine? Like what songs and prayers do you sing to the mushrooms to bless it before you give it to people? And they said, Every trial that's ever been done in the U.S. has used synthetic psilocybin. And he was giving this as an example of like how the worlds yeah. were just so far apart. Where he said, in some cultures, it's the shaman that takes the medicine and the, the patient or the client doesn't even drink the medicine. And so what was his response to when you said that? You know, asked to follow up and just said like... Yeah, and this is, yeah. should be I a mean, doorway of curiosity. I'm, you know, it's kind of like from where I'm sitting. I'm to, not really like surprised to, by that. And I'm, because I'm not surprised, it's, you know, I'm kind and, of expecting on some um, level people to do that. I got a lot um, of people coming up to and me. And it's sort of saying, the like, thing. It's it's, it's almost like when my two year old um, son really like, he just said, will you. smack me in the face. It's like upsetting, but you're also like, okay, it's like two year old, you know. I didn't expect anything different. Like, uh -huh. what, what would I expect at this point? But right. Thank you for saying it. I do expect different because I'd say in the last five years, there's been a lot of growth in the field in uh -huh. terms of cultural humility. Well, yeah, a one woman came up to me afterwards and she said, thank you for saying that because, like, I'm from indigenous lineage. I'm just, she's like, I didn't expect anything different. Like, what, what would I expect at this point? But thank you for saying it. I do expect different because... I'd say in the last five years, there's been a lot of growth in the field in terms of cultural humility, you know, awareness of colonialism and um, awareness of disparities and how there's just not been a lot of people of color in these trials and a number of other topics that have come to the surface. There, at least there's some acknowledgement. At least at the MAPS National Conference last year, there were some indigenous elders invited. I mean, there's still were protests of Rick Doblin's closing remarks, I, but, but like people, he was giving a speech and these like five or so kind of um, youngest, younger activists interrupted him and he like stepped aside and gave them the mic and let them speak. It's really, it was pretty quite interesting, I think. Um, I mean, they were just saying that. Mm -hmm. I think their main message was like, yeah, you've kind of given some lip service, but you got to do better and let indigenous people really have a seat at the table and really be leading. Um, another person was saying, be careful with these medicines. Like, you know, coca is a sacred medicine and look at the damage cocaine can do. Oh, yeah, yeah, Opium of course. Opium is a sacred medicine. Look at the damage that And, like, I don't mean to compare the Johns Hopkins leading scientists of the Center for Consciousness to my two-year-old. Important. That sounds so, kind of condescending. So like, I think at this point, you shouldn't 
be a world-leading academic yeah. institution and just be able to to stay in your silo like that. I think it's I think it's not acceptable. I'm very I was very touched by the way that he died and the way that he shared his dying process with people. <laughs> I mean, they're doing amazing work. They're doing pioneering work. Roland Griffiths obviously is like super amazing, like trailblazing guy who, and I love, I'm just, I'm very, I was That's very touched was by the way that he died like and the way that he I made that comparison. I was, I'm more just thinking about like, I, think I don't amazing, expect much from institutions. institutions. And I can understand how someone who's a super progressive that individual that, we're that in wants right now, to put people, forth all these things and maybe is really open to a lot of that stuff just comes across a bunch of institutional bureaucratic walls and is unable to do so. And then they themselves become represented as such or defined by the institutional's close-mindedness. So, like, just to just mm -hmm. to for the ref record, I just want to say that. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and it's interesting too. You mentioned coca. I'm just thinking about like that's a plant that just like hasn't really been studied because of like it's so outlawed, and, which is like so insane because we we know how medicinal it is and therapeutic it is for people in all kinds of conditions. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. 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 There was something else I wanted to ask you, and I can't remember what it was, um, but. Let me check this really quick because I had something here. How are we doing on time for you? Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, this maybe that we can just kind of jump off this. Like, and part of the reason I don't have like a high level of expectations for institutions is because the institution, uh, in a lot of ways, it's like it can only go so deep into like spirituality even if it's a center for consciousness like i i feel like there's just a natural limitation there in the way that we have like constructed things in the dominant cultural's ideology and so it's like they to even ask the question on some level of like oh what about the idea of like the other guy takes the medicine and heals the person to even ask that question and like play with that it's like you probably be looked at as like a kook or something like that even at a place like the center for consciousness research it's <laughs> like kind of funny right but at the same time it's like that's why um yeah I, I just like the institutions are just like so closed in so many ways and you you have to think about it right it's like yeah, these institutions yeah. are coming out of like colonialism they're coming out of capitalism they're coming out of like genocide yeah, yeah. that's what this whole like thing is built on that's right. why it's exactly. like this whole thing is so fascinating <laughs> to me because it's, funny. it's almost like a healthy destruction of the culture in some way but a better way to put it is like a transformation which implies a destruction to get to the transformative state um so it, it's positive in that sense but uh, quick question for you. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think about Pluto and Aquarius and all this? I am like a, um, I was like a lapsed astrologer. So mm. like, my mom used to call herself mm -hmm. a lapsed Catholic. Like okay. She used to be Catholic and then mm -hmm. she figured off. And so I hadn't really been looking at my chart that much. And mm -hmm. I had this thought that I was like, okay, let's look at your chart. I am like a, um, What's it called? Lapsed astrologer, I sort of. You know, myself, say like they're my mom used to call herself a lapsed Catholic. Like she used to be Catholic, and then she kind of veered off. And so I hadn't really been looking at my chart that much, and I had this thought that I was like, okay, let's look at your chart, and I just pulled it up. That's what that's what like, I've been looking at recently. I wanted to ask you about that too. I was uh -huh. just telling. I was just reviewing my, myself with myself my current feelings towards astrology, which is I don't put a whole lot of it input into like 
the more transitory aspects and even things changing signs because the signs are not, you know, the signs vary by what system you're using and what culture you're using and procession of equinoxes and whatnot. Um, so, but I was like, but I, what I do find helpful is major aspects like when you have a slow mo- moving planet making a square. You're much more the astrologer than I am. So, <laughs> and then I looked at my chart. It was like, yeah. my natal Pluto okay. is in 29 degrees Libra, so it was exact square with Pluto at that moment. And now Pluto's going into Pisces. Okay. And so, is that is going to Pisces? Yeah, it was in Aquarius, now going into Pisces. So it's so my Pluto was in my Pluto was in okay, the end of Libra. Okay, so this is what I kind of wanted to ask you. And at the moment, oh, I looked great, at my though, chart. Maybe you can help me out. So Pluto I, I was reading all this stuff in Western astrology, which, as I understand, is like the tropical now, astrology system, right? Yeah. Does it does not account for the procession of the equinoxes? So I mean, Sagittarius, Capricorn. So Pluto is Pluto and just going into Aquarius. Is it going from Capricorn into Aquarius? This is how right lapsed now. I am. It will officially go direct 100% before retrogrades one more time on Macola's birthday, okay. November 19th. It, it went uh-huh. in like last yeah. week or something, January 20th, whatever it was. But, um, right. well, I mean, it's aware of it, but it doesn't In Vedic astrology, like, the other it. system, yeah. it, it's not it's in capricorn it just it just entered capricorn if you look if you get one of those apps on the phone you okay. look at the sky okay, it you. shows that pluto's clearly in capricorn okay okay that is that's what kind of made me not really that interested in astrology for a while because uh-huh. i just could not yeah Myself, well, so in if you're talking about the uh, constellation, so in tropical, there's a difference <laughs> between the constellation yeah. of a Capricorn and the sign of Capricorn. That is, in reality, it's not there. Made me not really that interested in astrology for a while because I just could not square myself, so to speak, right. with um, <laughs> with with tropical astrology because of the because when you're saying it's in a certain sign. You're like, what the heck does that mean? It's not in an actual, it's not corresponding to an actual place in the sky. It's corresponding to a time of year, sort of, because it's based more on this equinoxes and the solstices, but that really only works when you're talking about the sun. So if you're talking about another planet, it gets very theoretical of what you mean when you say it's in that sign. It's so, I mean, I could look more at Vedic astrology. And, um, but I just tend to look more at the major planetary um, aspects. So no matter what system you're using, like Pluto is right now square my natal mm-hmm. Pluto. Like it's 90 degrees from where it was when I was born. And then like when I happen to look at some of the changes you would expect during that time, it was like super right on point. And then I looked at the house that it was in, even though I don't give as much credence to that, it was in the house of cancer. And that was like super, it was very much a maternal kind of crisis. I also became a mom during this square. And um, so, yeah, I think there's, I think that's just what I tend to focus on is the major. Okay, cool. And, or I, the I've major been trying to like reconcile aspects, this within myself and understand it. are opposite uh, each other. Have to, each other or you know, the other, way especially I've, if I've they're planets, my understanding is like, regardless of what sign Pluto is in, trajectory, there or is just a, looking at the moon, radical the phases transformative of the moon, energy that's going through the planet right now, the moon and society is, is definitely going through um, like and I look a, little a bit less rebirthing the process. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's obvious. You don't even just look at the newspaper for five minutes, you know. That's that's my feeling about it. So, you know, maybe Pluto affirms that, maybe not. I don't know. But at the end of the day, it's like 
we're definitely like on the verge of something that is pretty I, I do radical. A, a pretty memorable moment where I was I was teaching like a little astrology learning group and you can in feel it. Mm-hmm. And I was looking uh-huh. at the chart and I was like, so let's look uh-huh. at the astrology for Jay. And I was like, dang, yeah. whoa, this is a strong chart. Like, oh my god. Like, actually, this is kind of a powerful, scary chart. And Sophia was like. Oh, I, I do remember a, a pretty memorable moment where I was I was teaching. Oh, that like that was that day. Learning group yeah. in your wow. living room. And, <laughs> yeah, and I was looking at the chart happening. and I was like, so let's look at the astrology for today. And I was like, dang, whoa, this is a strong uh-huh. chart. Like, oh my god. Like, actually, this is kind of a powerful, scary chart. And Sophia was like, oh, new breaking news. Like, there was just an attack inside the Capitol. Like, you know, somebody. It was. It was like, yeah. And so, you know, sometimes, yeah, mm-hmm. I think there's, there's, I can't discount it. And I think I want to get back into like at least tracking the moon a little bit more because I think it did bring a lot of benefit to my life and just connecting, feeling more connected to time and place. That's, that's a main, that's a big one that helps for me. And so I'm not, I'm not I'm more embodied when I'm following the movements Understood. of the planets. That sounds like a sober perspective. I, think I appreciate There's it. definitely a lot of benefit in it. So but also uh, maybe we're kind of getting towards the end. I wanted to ask you really though, you have a course that you're doing and, they, and just referencing I'd like it all to know more about it. And using sure. it so to describe things that don't necessarily feel resonant, it can get a little irritating. Yeah. And our Instagram is at Nursing Sacred Medicine. Yeah, um, sure. Sure, so I have a current course. It's called Nursing and Sacred Medicine Introduction to Psychedelic Therapy. So it's for nurses. It's a self-paced course. You can find more at nursingsacredmedicine.thinkific.com. And our Instagram is at Nursing Sacred Medicine. And then I'm working on a new project a with a collaborator, course, Angela Ward, who's a wonderful, heart-centered, experienced nurse uh, RN in Seattle. And we haven't launched it yet, so we don't have a website to share. But you can, if you go to Nursing Sacred Medicine, if you're interested, you can get on our mailing list for it. And um, it's a little bit of a longer course about, it's called Return to Roots, and it is through our new initiative, which is the Holistic Psychedelic Nursing Collective. And it's about not so much studying psychedelics, but study like reigniting your own nursing flame, your passion for the work and your roots, like studying, like I was saying, the roots of modern medicine that are connected to the elements and to a reverent respect for herbs and um, acknowledging and, and looking at because there's so few patterns that we can learn from in sacred traditions and um, it's a self-development course for nurses so really focusing on how to cultivate the qualities that you need to be a good psychedelic practitioner but also to be a better nurse and be a happier nurse especially at this time when nurses are experiencing a lot of pain and burnout um so yeah there's there's a shortage and it's just post-covid you know there's like a lot of people who went through a lot of trauma in covid and the systems are still recovering from it as well and it just exposed a lot of things about the kind of industrial nursing complex that were already there awesome for people so it's an opportunity to reconnect with your roots uh, the roots of nursing you know florence nightingale and other theorists Amazing. that had some pretty okay. cool ideas um, and so is that's coming else out and then like to share? our ultimate goal is to or create any topics a you want to go into I'm not nurse coaching rush, program you know. for psychedelic nurses so go you can go to that website, nursingsacredmedicine.thinkific.com, and sign up for the mailing list, mm-hmm. and then you'll get updates for our new program. 
was I, my passion and care for this medicine is. I'd like to share. I'd like to share just, um, you know, just gratitude. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for your friendship over the years. And um, like I said, these I, my passion and care for this medicine is um, definitely for healing for people who really need it, and you know, for the yeah. hope that people who are in crisis or people who just want to expand their consciousness have the opportunity to access that but also for humanity for us to remember the sacred and to remember some sacred ways that maybe we can bring into our society in outside of the psychedelic entheogenic world just bringing back those sacred ways and so i'm just expressing a lot of gratitude for the places where these medicines have come from the people who have kept them alive often at risk of you know their reputation or their lives the underground practitioners, the researchers, Touch the teachers, and the medicine. Well, thank you for coming. The Definitely felt all that. that really that, interesting to hear all that, that and to spirit seems to be pick your brain about the things. So thank you for taking the time to share it. Really appreciate my, it. My uh, yeah, it's it's really fascinating because present and you know a few years ago it'd be kind of like that I can just wouldn't talk about these things especially like on a podcast or maybe you would on a podcast i don't know but this the mm -hmm. kind of it's the kind of subject of discussion that is now become like welcomed mm -hmm. and it's a really interesting yeah. like feeling because there's still like this stigma around it as if we're doing something or talking about something we shouldn't be but at the end of the day uh it's like the 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 old paradigm that just needs to break apart around that and so thank you for coming on and doing all the work that you're doing because it's really important and it will help a lot of people and mm -hmm. i think the more that this stuff mm -hmm. becomes something that is in people's everyday vocabulary and understanding and perception and thoughts but in a way that still honors the sacred and connects them back to traditional cultures in a way that's respectful with humility mm -hmm. um and nature mm -hmm the better off that we're going to be. So thank you for coming and sharing and hope to talk with you again sometime and best of luck with the course. Thank you. It was, it was a blast. Okay. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It was, it was a blast. Peace.